The best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way. And that's with Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts and help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's designed by real people for real conversations, and their tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teaching, so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription at babbel.com slash bluewire. That's 60% off at babbel.com slash bluewire, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash bluewire. Rules and restrictions apply. Welcome to another episode of the Future Sox Podcast. My name is Mike Rankin. I will be your host alongside senior writer James Fox. We're joined by Brian Sikowski, National Prospect and Scouting Supervisor for Perfect Game USA. Brian, it is such a pleasure to talk to you. We use Perfect Game so frequently at Future Sox, especially on draft day. We're scouring Twitter and we're seeing the information that you're able to provide as well is on perfectgame.org. So we really appreciate you jumping on the podcast today. First things first, how how are you during these last few weeks? I know it's been nonstop working, and I guess, you know, you were talking to us a little bit before we started recording here. You were even busy today over the last even couple <laughs> hours. So how, how are you doing? I'm good, man. Um, it was good to get back on the road. Um, you know, the draft ended Thursday night, and the next day I picked up and drove to Iowa and worked a showcase. And then the last couple of days I've spent driving down to Alabama and PG national starts on Wednesday. So it's, it's good to get back out on the road. It's good to get uh, seeing players again, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Well, I'm glad you're able to at least, uh, you know, do your thing right. And, and scout a little bit because we're dealing with a lot of the unknown here. And it's unfortunate because the kids, man, the kids are getting affected by all this too, as well. So we're, we're, and of course, it's a lot of health-related issues that we're keeping an eye on. We don't even want to touch on the Major League Baseball situation at this point. Negotiations keep going back and forth. doesn't seem like an end is in sight. So let's focus on what went down on that Thursday in the Major League Baseball draft. What did you think specifically as we start off with the White Sox in their first five, well, their five-round picks this year? What do you believe was their strategy, how do you believe that went down for the White Sox, and how would you grade their first couple of picks with Garrett Crochet and Jared Kelly? Well, I mean, it's, you know, they didn't really spread it out, which is, you know, it's fine. You know, like it depends on your approach, really, or what you prefer as an approach. They didn't spread it out. Um, they really kind of just, Crochet and Kelly are the guys, you know, and that's not to say that the other guys aren't nice players, but, uh, you know, this draft is going to be judged by how Crochet and Kelly do. So, you know, Crochet is a guy who, make the argument, has the, the best stuff in the draft. Um, there's a chance for him to start. He's got trouble getting right-handers out. And, uh, you know, there's there's some injury and some delivery quirk stuff there you got to figure out. And 
And uh, Jared Kelly, obviously, everyone knows. A big physical Texan right-hander. He can throw 100. He's got a really good changeup. He needs to spin the ball better. Um, but, yeah, I, I mean, it's two high upside guys they took with their first two picks that they spent most of their money on. So you're, it's going to depend on how those two do and how this draft class will be looked back at. Yeah, that's, you know, that's, that's definitely, you know, the approach that they took was cramming all that money into the first two picks. So like with that in the third round, you know, they, they obviously saved some money, drafted two-way player Addison Coffey out of Wabash College. You had a little bit of information about the player. Um, on Twitter, it seems like he'll be mostly pitching in the White Sox system. What can you tell us about him? Yeah, I mean, that's what it is. Hey, he was a two-way guy in high school. Um, you know, went to San Jack, one of the better JUCOs in the country, and then transferred to back to Wabash, back to Illinois, uh, this, this past year for his third year. Um, it's, it's a PO at this point, a pitcher only, as far as I understand. He's been a two-way guy, like you said, but I think it's just a – um, looking at him as like a reliever moving forward. Uh, he was, it's kind of an interesting thing with him. Like scouts saw him throw this year, but not everyone saw him throw really well. And I think that was kind of the, like the White Sox hidden gem kind of, so to speak in the Juco market was, you know, they were one of the only teams who saw him throwing in the mid nineties with a hard slider. So I, I think it's like, it's an upside play. Uh, you know, to say the least, but I'm sure they saved some money there too. Yeah. So like you kind of just alluded to there, I, I had heard that, you know, he's a Muncie, Indiana kid. He, so he's supposedly been working out at Mike Shirley's facility, like basically since he was a kid. So sure. You know, like Shirley knew of him. He obviously went to Arizona state was supposed to go to Louisville, but you know, he took the money to go pro now. So um, then into the, into the fifth round, they took Auburn lefty Bailey Horn. What can you tell us about him? Where where do you think he would have landed maybe in a normal year, like with a full junior season? I mean, I think he's, you know, he, he wasn't like highly regarded, but he's one of these guys that still seems like probably a top 10 round guy in a full season, right? Yeah, no doubt. I, I mean, he, as a redshirt junior, who's got Tommy John on the record, like that's one of those guys that even though he can go back to school, it's probably just time to sign. Um, but at the same time, it's like, that's, it's not like it's not a prospect, you know, it's like a good size lefty. You can get the fastball in the mid nineties. You can miss bats with a slider. Like there's some things to like there. No question. Um, as far as money saving guys goes, like, I think that was one of the better ones in the draft. Uh, so yeah, I like that pick. Yeah. It's really interesting when you look at the White Sox strategy as a whole, Brian, because like you said, obviously the priority is across the first two rounds with those pitchers, making sure that they sign Kelly and crochet, but I feel like that the White Sox did a great job in their scouting department to find three subsequent players who fit right in, in those bonus pool slots where they can afford to, you know, give them a certain amount and also feel good about the talent that they brought in. Uh, and somebody we didn't mention was the fourth rounder, Caden Meckles, who just recently underwent Tommy John surgery. I mean, there was a little bit of upside, it seemed, prior to the injury and, you know, Anytime you talk about a guy with Tommy John surgery in a draft class, it's kind of puzzling. But in this sense, it it does fit the mold of what the White Sox were trying to do. So ultimately, how would you describe the White Sox way of going about their draft class, knowing that, okay, we were limited in the bonus pool across the, the last three rounds. But, you know, in terms of the talent that they gained, what would you say that they got? Well, I, like I said, man, kind of the, the first question, like this draft is is the crochet and Kelly draft. 
you know, almost nothing else matters. Um, the guys they took after that, you know, if Coffee or Meckles or Horn, if, if one of them pitches in the big leagues one day, you call it a win and say good scouting. Uh, but this draft is going to be determined, the success of it, by Crochet and, Ke- and Kelly. If Garrett Crochet becomes a nice reliever and we never hear from Jared Kelly again, then this wasn't a real good draft. But if Garrett Crochet and Jared Kelly turn into impact major leaguers, you're going to be talking about this draft as maybe one of their better ones of all time. Like that's kind of the, the, the swing between downside and upside to really tying your market to two players here. But with that being said, you know, they got two like top 25 talents on our board. Uh, So like, I'm not trying to like take anything away from them. They got two dudes. It's just those dudes got a hit now. You know, you're in a small draft. You don't have many picks. Those guys got a hit. And, uh, you know, I, I think there's a good chance they will. That's why they're ranked so high. Can you tell us a little bit more about what the White Sox have in Garrett Crochet, obviously 11th overall? We're really intrigued by, you know, his size and, and of course, that fastball. But what is it that the White Sox saw in him that they loved and then also maybe some concerns that you may have related to Crochet's stuff? Yeah, I mean, it's the stuff and the size right away. Now he's 6'6", 220. He throws his left hand. His fastball hits 99, and the, the metrics on the pitch are really good, and uh, the slider's outstanding. You know, it's it's a 70-grade pitch sometimes. Um, I think at the very least, he's a, a really talented back end of the bullpen lefty guy, you know, like lefty closer, lefty setup guy. Um, he needs to do a better job getting righties out. Uh, there are some concerns about sort of the quirkiness and the functionality of the delivery, but he's always thrown, you know, a fair amount of strikes. And I think that having one start this year did impact him. Uh, He was nasty in that one start, but still like we had three innings of him in 2020. Um, So I I think that he's a guy who went in a good spot. I think that had he played all spring, we could have been talking about him even higher than 11th. Uh, And in that same vein, we could be talking about him lower than 11th if he didn't have a good spring, obviously. Um, so I, I think you're going to hear him compared to Chris Sale. I think that if there's an MLB season this year and, and the White Sox are competitive and they're thinking maybe we can make a run at a playoff spot, Crochet's a guy who could you could see some innings in uh, getting this year because I think he's capable of missing bats in a bullpen right now. Um, I don't know if that's what they'll choose to do. I, I'm sure at picking him at 11th overall, they envision him like Sale becoming a starter and becoming a really good starter. So we'll see. There's a lot of ways that that one could go, given the the potential to develop him a couple different ways. Brian, shifting gears a little bit to the rest of the American League Central, it seems like Detroit did a solid job of adding offensive talent. Like throughout, obviously, you get Spencer Torkelson number one. You're getting, you know, pretty much a stud player right away. But I think, you know, I think they approached the rest of their their draft in a smart way. How do you think they did the rest of the way? Yeah, I mean, I'm a Tigers guy. You know, I'm a Detroiter. I grew up as a big Tigers fan. And, and in my professional you know, life, I try to stay as unbiased as possible. But, like, I, you know, I want the Tigers to do well. That's How can I not? Um, and this was the first draft that I was like – that they've had since I've been covering it as, as a job um, that I was like, well, oh, like, okay, you know. I, I think you could see the difference in strategy right away on, on day two. And I, Daniel Cabrera was intimated to me several times that he was going to be the pick at 38. I came close to saying so uh, on Twitter. Like it was very much trending in that direction. And, and I would have been fine with Daniel Cabrera at pick 38. We had him valued right around there on the board. So then they take Dylan Dingler, the first rounder who fell, and still get Cabrera at 62. 
and it was like, okay, you know, like, uh oh, this looks different here. You know, like this looks pretty good, guys. And then Workman in the fourth and Colt Keefe in the fifth. And, and obviously the expectation is to sign all of them. Like, hell yeah, man. I thought that was a great draft. Yeah, and I mean, for you, you said you're a Detroit guy, so I'm sure you're pretty up on what the Tigers are doing within their system. Uh, a lot of top arms, it seems, uh, ac- across their top 10. That's got to be encouraging. Who are some of the guys that you're highlighting within their system that you know can, can make an impact with the Tigers upcoming soon? Oh, I, it's the arms at that point. You know, I, I think the only the only bat that you think might have a chance to be an everyday regular that's relatively close is uh, Isaac Paredes. But I, I don't know if he's this year or next year or what he's going to play. Uh, but this, the general consensus seems to be that that guy will hit. Uh, but after that, man, it's the arms. It's Mize and Manning and Scooble. Uh, those are the big three. And this is the, the likely outcome is not that they become – the one, two, and three in the rotation, you know, realistically that probably won't happen, but that's what the hope is. That's what the expectation is. Like let's, this is the next Verlander Scherzer uh, Porcello or whatever your, your favorite triumvirate to Detroit in the last decade was like, that's the hope. Um, And you pair a guy like Riley green and and Spencer Torkelson this year and and Dingler and Cabrera and, and others, and maybe Parker Meadows down the line. And, you start to look at and see what may end up being a nucleus of a competitive team. Um, they still got to develop those guys. They still have to supplement those guys. They still have to do those things the right way. But for the first time in, in uh, you know, several years, it feels slightly optimistic uh, in the Motor City on the baseball front. It'll be interesting to see how the Central develops because there's a few teams that have been committed to the rebuild here lately. And you know, moving now to the Kansas City Royals, I mean, I feel like, you know, outside of those World Series, <laughs> that they're going to be rebuilding for a while now. But it seemed like they had a pretty good draft in 2020. And they're doing some work in the undrafted free agent class as well. How would you evaluate Kansas City at this point and what they did in 2020? Well, I can't imagine that they expected Lacey to be there at four. Um, maybe they did. Maybe I just wasn't aware of Lacey not going in the top three until too late. Like, I'm not saying that that's not the case, but I can't imagine that Dayton Moore gets on the clock at pick four with Asa Lacey on the board. And like, that's what he expected. Um, so I'm sure that they had to make some decisions there. You know, Martin was still on the board. Gonzalez was still on the board. Veen was still on the board. Uh, so he, you know, he went with the, the best arm in the class as we have it, as most people have it. So anytime you can get the best arm in the class, uh, obviously you have to call that a win. I'm a big Nick Lofton guy. I think he's an everyday shortstop soon. Um, I, I think Gentry's a guy who might've been underrated a little bit. I think he's got some everyday regular upside. And then Chamberlain and Klein are both guys that I would expect to help them out of the bullpen in some ways. Uh, Chamberlain may remind people of Tim Collins a little bit. Uh, as far as Kansas City undersized lefty throwbacks. Uh, Klein is a big, giant righty who throws hard but can't throw strikes and doesn't have any off-speed pitches yet, so we'll see with him. And then the the prep kid was the was Ben Hernandez. That was the prep guy they took. A uh, uh, Chicago-area kid who was committed to UIC, um, solid-sized righty with a really good changeup, needs to spin the ball better. Um, you know, that that's kind of – what's going to determine his upside is how good he ends up spinning the baseball. But yeah, that's, that's another one there that uh, is an upside play is, and I think they paired it nicely with the rest of the college uh, up and down the board there. I I think, yeah, I similarly good draft as far as the AL central goes. 
Do you have any observations just overall on the other two clubs, maybe briefly what the Indians and Twins did overall? Yeah, I thought the Indians did really, really well. I thought they had like a top three draft. Um, They just, it felt to me like they maximized value at every pick. Just, I thought that they and the Tigers did a really good job of like getting guys later than they should have. Just, I thought they had a really good draft. And the Twins, you know, it's, hey, they had four picks. So, you know, you get Sabato in a good spot. I, I thought Solari was a was a little bit ahead of where he needed to go. But if you're using that money to then sign uh, Kalai Rosario, who's got big-time offensive upside, and, and Marco Rea, who I think is going to throw the hell out of the baseball eventually, like, it's fine with me, man. I, I thought they did well. You're limited there, like I said, with four picks. But but I thought they, they spread it around pretty well. Something that caught us off guard too, Brian, at the, at the top of the draft – is Heston Kirstad going number two overall? And that kind of threw us all for a loop. Was there any other surprises, uh, in your opinion, that occurred across the first round or at any point in the draft that stood out to you? Yeah, I mean, we knew who Nick Nick York was. You know, everybody knows who Nick York was. We'd heard some chatter that he was going to be offered a couple million bucks and turn it down before the draft. Um Everybody was kind of chattering about, ah, oh, he's doing the Brooks Lee thing, or ah, oh, he's doing the Matt McClain thing, or whatever. And then fast forward, he goes at 17th overall. So I wasn't, I was caught off guard, but was able to recover. The one that threw me, however, was uh, the Rangers in the second with Evan Carter, uh, East Tennessee high school kid. That's, you know, I pride myself on knowing most players in the country. And that, I, I who? You know, there, there's some who's on in a regular draft, but usually not in the second round and usually not high school kids. So that was a, uh, you know, I did, had to do some digging on that. was kind of a, stuck in a weird place mid-draft because I was like a goldfish, like opening my mouth and closing it without making a sound. I had nothing to say about the guy. Um, so that was a surprise. And, and honestly, you guys taking Addison Coffee in the third was like, wouldn't have surprised me if you guys took someone from Wabash in the third, but I was surprised it was coffee. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. I mean, that, that was the coffee pick was, you know, we obviously didn't know who he was. Um, it was pretty funny. Like Jim Callis actually like had a scouting report of him on television, which is, yeah. you know, one of the things that was kind of humorous there. I know you mentioned Nick York there. Um, does, that probably makes a little bit more sense after seeing the rest of the Red Sox draft though. Right. I would think, I mean, everybody was puzzled immediately, you know, and I think they probably think that he was just going to continue to hit and he, you know, it might not have looked as bad. Like if, if there was a full season, um, right. But they also, they added more prep talent with one of with a couple of their other picks, I thought. Yeah. I, I mean, they got blaze Jordan in the third round. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah, that's you right. know, it's York, I think, is probably going to save them some money there. I don't know how much. I don't think it's going to be as much as people might think it is. He was valued as a first rounder by several different teams. So um, as seemingly out of nowhere as that pick is, it wasn't like within kind of the industry. Um, Jordan is is the guy that they're going to have to pay. I don't know how much they're going to have to go over, but I'm sure they will. Uh, I really like Drohan. I think he's got really, really good stuff. He just, man, he needs some more deception. He needs some better command. It just, there's stuff there that flashes so much that make you think he might be a first rounder and then he's not. Um, So I'm interested in that one. And uh, yeah, I mean, it was an interesting draft for Boston. Uh, I don't know if at the end of the day, I I think they ended up kind of getting value fits. Like uh, if you take York too early, like whatever, you got plays Jordan too late too. So 
Yeah, I think they did fine. I want to circle back briefly um, about Jared Kelly. So, you know, we had kind of here at Future Sox been all over the Jared Kelly interest for months. Um, we kind of knew the Sox were were pretty interested. And then as it got closer to draft day, it kind of seemed like, okay, they're not going to take this high school righty plunge at 11. You know, it's something they haven't done since 2001. You know, and then you kind of start catching wind that they're going to try to push Kelly to 47. And whether they had an agreement prior, who knows? You know, some of the concerns about Kelly, you you referenced, obviously, now body, now stuff. He has the, you know, the plus change up instead of having a breaking ball. And one of the things that Mike Shirley said was, I think he, they think it's easier to teach him like a curveball or a slider than it would be to like, you know, be the other way around and teach him a change up. So do you have any thoughts on that in particular? Depends on what you b- believe with your own player depth. I mean, it's, I've seen Jared Kelly throw a good slider. You know, I'm not super worried. It's not like, uh, like I said this on another podcast a couple of weeks ago when someone was trying to, you know, crucify Jared Kelly because he didn't have a plus slider. Like, it's not like the kid has never once thrown a slider above a 30. You know, like I've seen him rip off some solid ones. It's just he pitches at 98 and has a 70 changeup. So he doesn't really throw the slider all that often against high school players. Um I'm optimistic that he's got a chance for an average breaking ball. I've seen him throw an average breaking ball. He needs to be more consistent with it. He needs to refine it. He needs player dev to help him, all the above. But I was a believer that uh, the concerns with him were a little overblown, um, just in terms of spinning the baseball, the field to do that. But, yeah, I mean, he he does. He needs to get it better. But at the same time, dude, like you got a high school kid who throws 100 with a 70 changeup in the, in the second round, you know. I, I think that's probably a pretty good pick. <laughs> yeah, we're excited about Jared Kelly, of course, just based on his size and like you just explained it, that change up and, and as an 18-year-old throwing a 98-mile-an-hour fastball with consistency, I mean, that is that is something that will catch your attention real quick. But I want to ask you, how should the White Sox, in your opinion, proceed in developing this kind of player? Because – with his frame, with his size, it looks like he's ready to pitch in the big leagues now. But of course, you know, it doesn't work that way. And, you know, as an 18 year old, I feel like you need to take it easy a little bit. You got to be cautious with how you proceed with someone who throws this hard with as little experience as he has. 100%. Uh, the, the answer to your question is cautiously. Um, whether that means limiting his innings for a while, whether that means, you know, stretching him out gradually. I, I don't think anybody's going to play minor league baseball this year. So we're talking about next spring already. Um, yeah, I, it's cautiously. It's it's a high upside, high velocity, 18 uh, year old kid. You got to handle that with uh, with kid gloves. You have to. Um, if that means that he's five years away, then so be it. I, I don't I don't think he is. But, you know, to to just that's you're investing a lot of money in that dude. There's no reason to, to potentially hamper his development by rushing the kid. He's got, he's like any kid. He's super talented, but he's got a long, long ways to go to pitch in the major leagues. How about some of these prep arms that the White Sox took, you know, over the last couple of years, Kelly now, and then last season, Andrew Dahlquist, Matthew Thompson. And on top of that, James Beard is another prep player, not a pitcher, but a position player. And I bring those names up specifically because I believe you were able to get a chance to see those players. Mm-hmm. Could you kind of highlight some some of you know the the positives that you were able to gain watching a Thompson, Dawquist, Beard, who stood out to you, and and what the White Sox have in those players? Yeah, I 
it was kind of a, a stark departure somewhat from the White Sox last year that I liked. You know, they took they went with the college bat in the first round. Everybody expected them to. But then it was like, all right, upside prep, upside prep, upside prep, which was unique for them um, in recent history anyway. But, yeah, I think that, that Thompson's probably the guy with the best upside there. He's got great size. He's got great athleticism. He's got unreal arm speed. Uh, he's into the mid-90s at times. Uh, the curveball, depending on when you see him, is either plus or a 35. Um, he needs refinement. He's got a long ways to go with his command and his repeatability and his understanding of pitching. But he's got tremendous upside. Like, that, you know, that's the kid who uh, kind of the Tukey Toussaint starter pack, like, so to speak. Um, that's that level of, of natural ability, but also that level of being raw. Uh, Dahlquist was more of the, like, uh, less volatile, more sure high school guys. Uh, he's sm- he's on the not smaller, but he's a somewhat undersized righty. Uh, he throws a lot more strikes. The velo's not a ton yet. It was ninety ninety three, maybe touch higher than that. A good curveball. A uh, guy who I don't know if he has the same upside as Thompson, but he's definitely more polished than Thompson is. And Beard was the uh, the 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 kind of athletic freak of the draft last year. Uh, he's Maybe the fastest guy in minor league baseball now. Um, you know, it's in Mississippi, so naturally he he drew some Billy Har- uh, Billy Hamilton comparisons by mistake. He's a runner, man. Uh, it's a, it's an unbelievable first step. It's unbelievable game changing speed both down the line and on the bases. Uh, he's got an idea of hitting. He's not one of those like you know Billy Hamilton type slap and run guys. He's got some strength to him. He can drive the ball a little bit. You're hoping it, it comes along more. Um, he's a guy from rural Mississippi who is a high school kid. So that's that's a raw profile. He's got a long ways to go. But you're betting on the speed and, and the development of the strength with the bat. And, and you know, I, I think everybody thinks he'll play center field. So that helps, too. But, yeah, I, it's it was three straight kind of upside preps last year. And was like, OK, yeah, all right, let's do this. Like, I, I dug it. So the, the White Sox haven't done anything officially yet in the undrafted marketplace. I'm expecting some signings at some point from them. Has this undrafted process gone similarly kind of to how you expected coming in? Yeah, I, I mean, it's I, – I hesitate to say no because, like, essentially yes. But I think there's there's more guys kind of signing that I didn't expect to and less guys signing that I did expect to. Um, I kind of figured we'd see some more seniors, but at the same time, like is five grand this year worth, you know, to just taking it versus maybe getting another year of a, a master's degree or something and having fun for another year and then signing for five grand next year. Like I get it. Um, I didn't expect this many high school kids. And by this many, I think there's been like five or six and even still. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's where people are getting excited on, on Twitter about these undrafted free agent signings. And like, some of them have been good. You know, some of them are, are solid players. I'm not taking that away from them, but you know, that these are guys who 99% of them are going to be org guys realistically. Um, so you if you sign an undrafted free agent like this for 20 grand or 15 grand or whatever, you sign seven of them. And one of them pitches three innings in the major leagues. Like you did a good job. Um, so yeah, you know, I, I think we're getting a little, out of control about, you know, yelling at teams to sign more guys and not yelling at teams to this, that, and the other thing. Like, let's relax. 
uh, these are all still undrafted free agents signing for 10 grand. So, you know, that's just, yeah, I know <laughs> it's, we, so I I've dealt with some of it with just people asking me like, why have the white Sox not signed anyone? And I'm like, look, like I think some signings are coming, but for them, even, you know, you can make the argument, like, you know, if they could get some college relievers or maybe a couple of kids out of Puerto yep. Rico, it makes sense. But honestly, yep. like they're going to lose great falls next year. They have a ton of like, young um, international type guys and high school guys that are going to be, you know, in rookie ball still next year, they, they really don't have a bunch of room for like a bunch of guys. And I think a lot of teams, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if like some of these guys are released next year before they even play like a game with the team that signed them because, you know, I mean, we're cutting 42 teams like that. That's going to happen. So yeah, I, I'm I'm with you. Like I've seen some of the like, oh, the White Sox they haven't done anything. Like it's because they have a bad reputation and nobody will go there. Like hey, you know, like I, I'm I'm not sure that's true. I just you know, it's just they're they're not going to get anybody you know substantial anyway right. at this point. I feel like so right. Um, so you're you're back on the road right now, um, for perfect game. Who are some of the top guys you're looking forward to seeing this week? Oh, um. I mean, this is for what I do with PG. I do. I have seen. I, I would say most of the players already that are coming to national, but I haven't. You know, this is really where I bear down on them. You right. Know? Okay. Um, this is like I've seen Andrew Painter, and I've seen uh, Brady House, and I've seen Luke Lito, and then like all those guys. I've seen them a bunch, but this is the first time where we're looking at it through the. All right, it's your draft year. You know, I'm going to try and, and nitpick the hell out of you like type of scouting. Um, so I'm excited to do that. I am every year. I'm excited to look at guys through that, through that different lens that I don't tend to look at them through leading up until this moment. Um, I'm really excited to see the, the Michigan kids who are coming down specifically. Uh, there's several, but that's just me being selfish. Um, you know, Luke Lito's one of them. Alex Mooney's one of them. We're going to get a look at Micah Ottenbright, who is a kind of a pop-up guy who I think is going to make a good appearance and, and get on some radars. Um, I'm going to see what Brady house looks like. He's been number one in the class for a couple of years now, uh, looking to see that. And, uh, I think we're going to see some velo. I, I think Chase Burns might throw a hundred. I, I think Andrew Painter is going to be mid upper nineties. It's, it's, uh, it's always an exciting, uh, lead up to PG national. Um, this is the official kind of kickoff date to the 2021 draft cycle where we're all going to, to kind of lock in and, and, you know, get after it again from a scouting standpoint. I'm excited to to see some friends I haven't seen in quite some time. And um, yeah, man, I, I I wish it was more. I wish teams could send 20 scouts each so we could all hang out. But you know, <laughs> Brian, really good stuff. I I always think that the scouting process is is really interesting. What you have to go through, the grind really never stops. I mean, you just finished right. the 2020 draft, and then all of a sudden you're right back on the road, getting back to work. So Let's let me ask you when you're scouting, right? Especially now, how valuable is it when you're communicating with, you know, other scouts around the area? Like how how frequently is it brought up about the value of, you know, staying at home and using technology as the jump starter to evaluate a lot of these players cuz you know, I'm sure especially in 2020 scouts were in person and saw enough of these players to get a general feel mm-hmm. of what they were able to offer. But when it comes down to it, you're watching a ton of video, I assume. Is that the case? Yeah, it was this year for sure. Um, I, I don't know if 
I don't think that that's going to be the expectation moving forward, God willing. Um, but yeah, this, this spring was a lot of scouts got pulled off the road in mid-March and it was synergy, synergy, synergy for, for three months. Um, writing video, finalizing reports. And you're right. Like these guys had the entire summer circuit last year into the fall. Um, a lot of the players, the high school kids that were taken were seen. A lot of the college players that were taken were on Cape Cod or played for Team USA or were in the Northwoods League or, or guys saw them this spring. Uh, very few of the players that were taken last week like weren't seen by anyone. You know, um, I'm hopeful that this summer at some point we can kind of relax the restrictions again and, and get some more guys back out on the road. And I, I understand I'm in somewhat of a unique situation in that MLB doesn't tell me what to do. Uh, Perfect game does. So <laughs> if they say come come to Hoover, I'm I'm sitting in the hotel room. I'm ready to roll. Um, so like I, I don't know, man. I, I think video is is going to continue to play a huge role in it. I, I think the TrackMan metrics and that are are going to continue to play a huge role in it, especially for in the early going here when scouts can't really be on the road other than a couple of them. Um, so they're going to do their in person looks. They're going to turn in their reports, but. You bet the data is going to be poured over just as heavily, if not more so. What are some of the things that you highlight personally when evaluating a player? Let's talk pitching real mm-hmm. quick. You know, just, you know, run down a little bit of, of what you're checking the boxes for when you're evaluating a player. Well, my kind of cardinal rule to evaluating pitchers is if you can't miss bats with your fastball, I'm not going to be in. Um, waves in Carson Fulmer, by the way. Uh, anyways, um, yeah, I, I just like that's kind of my cardinal rule. Like I've seen guys pitch in the mid 90s in high school and get tattooed. And it's like, I don't care that you throw 96, 17 year old kids are seeing it. Um, but it's so much more beyond that. It's the body. It's the athleticism. It's the delivery. Does it all work? If not, why? And if so, can we fix it? Uh, the same thing with the arm action. You're looking for deception. Uh, the spin rate stuff is important, especially when you can access it and you and you have a, a rudimentary understanding of it like I do. I'm not by any means any sort of expert, um, but it, I do. It does like aid in my evaluations. And then it's it's the stuff, man. You know, you can find out a lot about about a guy's stuff in the 10 warm up pitches before the first inning. You know, what are the things he wants to throw? Like, how does he like them? Does he feel comfortable with them? Did he throw seven change ups because he can't find it? Uh, you, you know, you can glean stuff before the game even starts. Um, then it's like I kind of keep track in my book when I'm writing. A, one of the columns I have is, is bats missed for each pitch. And at the end of the game, if it's if the kid's thrown 76 pitches and he's thrown 65 percent strikes and he's only missed two bats with his fastball, like I think that's a problem. Um, just, you know, again, that's just me. That's just one of my things. And I have one for hitters, too, that we can talk about if you want. But. Uh, yeah, man, it's, there's, there's a lot of it and, and you got to kind of reassess what everything looks like in the fourth inning then too. Like, okay, it's the guy's delivery. Does it look the same as it did three innings ago? Is this stuff down? Why? You know, is he just a skinny high school kid? Is that why? Or is there something, you know, beyond that? Is it because he's too efforty? Uh, yeah. I mean, there's a lot, man. We could talk for hours, <laughs> you know, honestly. Yeah. <laughs> I know. I, I love it. I love it. That's such good stuff. Pitching is my favorite to kind of sit back and evaluate myself. So, you know, I'm still learning and, you know, for you to explain it in that way, it's insightful. And I'm sure the listeners got a kick out of that as well, but you mentioned the hitters, please, please go into that because uh, that's another thing that I'm interested in. You know, they talk about the tools 
all the mm-hmm. time. But yeah, for you, what is it that you use to evaluate these players? Um, so again, again, like my cardinal rule for hitting is if you can't pull the ball, I probably don't think you can hit. Um, you know, and that's not in the sense like the kids who have that super exaggerated 1980s West Coast style baseball inside out, slap the ball the other way swing. Like that's something that they can, that, you know, you can break them of, you know, you can fix that with a swing adjustment. I'm talking about the guys who like take a pretty good swing and can never get the barrel out to pull it. You know, I'm talking about the guys who are, have bat speed and they have power and I've seen them hit the ball out to right center and this, that, and the other thing, but they never pull the ball in game. I just, you know, like, that's not for me. Uh, You got to be able to turn and burn sometimes. Um, But that's just me. But yeah, man, it's the first thing is bat speed. You know, if you don't have a requisite amount of bat speed, I kind of keep walking. Uh, In reality, you can coach bat speed. We do so at the high school program I I coach at. We're, We're big believers in training for bat speed. But when I'm sitting there, you know, looking for a high school kid that I think is going to be drafted in less than a year. If you don't have a requisite amount of bat speed, I don't, you know, I'm going to keep walking. Um, and then it's the body. Like I said, is this kid strong right now? If so, how strong? And if not, how strong can he get? That's kind of what projection is. Uh, it's easy to write the word projectable and it's easy to look at a skinny kid and say he's projectable, but is he really, you know, like it's not that simple sometimes. Um, and then, you know, it's kind of the, how do the hands work? Uh, the path, I'm not looking for overly flat paths. I, I want guys who who match plane, and I want guys who get on plane early, and I want guys who keep accelerating through contact. And, and um, I don't want guys who spray ground balls. I, I want guys who drive the ball up gaps, and I think everybody does. And I, I want to see how far you can hit a ball like, in batting practice. Show me how far you can hit the ball. like that. Even if it's one of your six rounds before the game, like let me see you try and hit the ball as far as you can. And then that tells me, okay, well, that's his damage swing, and he didn't quite make it out to left. So maybe we don't have a lot of juice there. Um, Yeah, again, this is one of those things that we could talk about for hours, I feel like. Uh, But, yeah, it's it's there's got to be, like, a requisite amount of box check for me to, like, sit down and bear down hardcore. You know, like I said, if you don't have uh, this uh, baseline of bat speed and if you're a guy who hits a lot of ground balls and – if you're a guy who refuses to pull the ball, then I, you know, I, there's dudes like that who hit in the major leagues, but not a lot of them. So for me, it's, it's, I need to find guys who can do damage and want to do damage and have the ability to do more damage in the future. <laughs> now, let me ask you this. So if you're sitting, you're, you know, you predominantly watch high school, college ranked players, mm-hmm. right? Yep. Would that evaluation change, say, if you're evaluating, professional players like somebody in the minors or potentially an indie ball like you're trying to project these guys to get to the major leagues and if they're a legitimate everyday major league player does does that philosophy change yeah i I mean it's the older you get the more than now the tools have to be um for me to evaluate a 17 year old high school kid i'm not looking at him necessarily through the same uh projection lens as i would a 21 year old physically mature college kid. Um, You want to project on everyone. You have to, that's the job. But if a 17 year old high school kid doesn't have a ton of juice yet, but the swing works and he's, he's got some actual physical, physical projection to him, then it's like, okay, well, I don't care that you don't hit the ball real far yet. Uh, We can, you know, I think we can work on that. But if the kid's 21 and he's six, two, 200 pounds, and he's got a strong look to him and, and he's got that bat speed and, 
and he's still not hitting the ball real far, then, then I'm more concerned. Um, you know, the kind of the older you get, like I said, the more, the more the present, the tools have to be, um, you can't double and triple project on a college kid like you can with a high school kid. Uh, you know, it's just, that's just the reality of it. Brian, we're not going to get um, into the major league talks at all, but obviously it's going to be a pretty shortened season. And there were some reports that Rob Manfred had the ability to kind of alter next year's draft order. So just briefly, you know, if they were to have like a shortened season of some kind, like I understand the issues with, you know, awarding, the worst team in a 50 game season with like the first pick next year. What makes sense to you as far as doing that? If you've thought about that at all, I haven't given it a lot of thought because I mean, quite honestly, it it doesn't change how I do my job at all. You know, (laughs) like there's still going to be the same damn players, just whoever picks first. Um, But yeah, man, I I mean, it's, I don't like tanking, you know? So like, I, I don't like rewarding teams who consciously chose to lose. Um, I, I like, uh, but it's hard to like prove that, you know, it's hard to say with certainty, like this team could have done this, but they didn't because they wanted to lose or whatever. And, you know, we all know tanking when we see it, but you can't really define it. Um, so I, I don't know, man, like it's tough. Like, do you do a lottery? Is that the answer? I've never really been a fan of the NBA or NHL lotteries. I, I don't know the best way to do it. I don't know the, the fairest way to do it. It, it feels to me like, I, you know, if you wanted to do something real special, like take all the teams who don't make the playoffs and make them play in a single elimination round robin for the number one overall pick. Like, let's do that. OK, now you have to win, you know. Um, but, I, you know, I don't I think that's probably a pipe dream. Yeah. Brian, this was great. Uh, really awesome stuff and appreciate you taking the time. I know you're really busy. Get some, get some rest. I'm sure that uh, you got a you got a full slate of coming on your schedule here. So we really appreciate the time. Yeah, man. Thanks for having me, guys. Anytime. That is Brian Sikowski from Perfect Game USA. You can follow him on Twitter at B underscore Sikowski underscore PG. Really good stuff when you go to perfectgame.org. Check them out. I mean, like I said, we use their outlet, their information, and Brian's source of information for a lot of what we do here at Future Sox. So if you're interested in the scouting scene as well as prospects, check them out and check out Brian's work. For James Fox and Brian Sikowski, my name's Mike Rankin. Thanks so much for tuning in to this episode of the Future Sox Podcast. You can check us out on Anchor.fm for our full library. Also, subscribe to us on Spotify or iTunes, as well as Google Play. Thanks again for tuning in. We will talk to you all next time.